Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Before DJ Quick ever rapped, he was a producer. He's still one of the most respected producers in hip-hop. Ten years or so ago, he made a record for the singer Truth Hurts. It was based on a sample, and the sample wasn't cleared, so they ended up getting sued. It turns out Quick didn't clear the sample because he didn't know what it was. He recorded it off of an Indian TV channel with a VCR. I always kept it uh, locked and loaded in case I saw something on TV. I was brushing my teeth and heard some great music come, you know, going on in my bedroom. I turned around and looked at the TV and saw a Bollywood ha- thing happening, and I just pushed record, you know, and then I uh, um, took the VCR tape and the VCR to the studio. I just extracted it off the VCR machine. <laughs> I, what I want to know is, what did the what did the engineer show, think when you just showed up with a VCR <laughs> under your arm? Like, do you mind if I plug this into the board? <laughs> no, even Dr. Dre used the VCR to, to to do the remix. He, I gave him the tape, and he used the VCR <laughs> in the studio to extract the rest of the music for the remix. It's funny. <laughs> hey, man, you never know where you get inspiration. Sometimes you just you gotta take it where it comes. It's bullseye. <laughs> This week, I'm joined by DJ Quick. His new EP is called Rosecrans. Most of his music's pretty raw. The beats are kind of pretty. You get some guff for it. That doesn't stop it. I don't know. I think that's what the world of music is missing. You know, there are people that are trying to do it now, and they're just making cute music. And cute is fleeting. I think that beautiful music lives forever. He was a house producer for Death Row Records, and he helped develop the G-Funk sound. A lot of times, those records were dramatic narratives about gangbang. Sometimes, that drama spilled out into real life. It's like you got to be as hard as the record or else. You know, it was strange times, too. He'll talk about how he had to remove himself from that lifestyle, and he'll geek out about his studio setup. And we're going to talk about his awesome, awesome hairstyles over the years. It'll be fun. Plus, the time Michael Ian Black did comedy at Max FunCon East after dragging his kids up on stage to make them watch. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. There's a short list of truly great rapper producers. Combining the verbal skill of the MC with the melodic and technical skills of a beat maker is rare. Doing so well is even more so. DJ Quick stands at the top of that list. His conversational, sometimes confessional mic style would have been enough to make him a star, but he also helped create the G-Funk sound. And his distinctive aesthetic has backed artists ranging from Snoop Dogg to Jay-Z to Tony, Tony, Tony. Here's the title track from his new EP, Rosecrans. Yes. I am the abominable DJ Quick. I'm in here with my boy Problem. We got game in here. We got Wiz in here. It's a problem, baby. Super Dave. Y'all know what Rosecrans is. It's a long-ass avenue that go from the beach to the streets. And it probably ain't got no potholes in it. But I know they done fixed them. They got money in Compton now. Let's go! DJ Quick, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. 
I, I want to play a little bit of your first hit. This was from your first album, Quick is the Name, from 1991, but I think you uh, you cut it maybe even a couple years before that. Um, it's called Born and Raised in yeah. Compton. Ah. Now everybody wants to know the truth about a brother named Quick. I come from the school of the slow wicked and the slick. A lot of people already know exactly where it's at because it's the home of the dragons and the crack. Yeah, that's the name of my hometown. I'm going down in the town where my name is all around. The suckers just be having a fit. And that's a pity, but I ain't doing nothing but. See, my lyrics, I'm doubling up and proving the suckers that I can throw. I'm passing a natural 10 to 4 or 6 or 8 before I go. Yes, I'm definitely freestyling all the while. Skip profiling. Never treats the DJ Chris that steals the show. So, yeah, that's how I'm living. I do as I please, you see. A younger brother, that's up for reality. Because everybody knows you have to be stomping if you're born and raised in How old were you when you made that record? 19 years old. What did you use to make it? Technics 1200 turntable, pyramid mixer, the one of the worst mixers ever made. It was all I could afford. And a uh, Emu Systems SP1200 sampling percussion machine. And the SP1200 at the time was like, uh, that was the line. machine. That yeah. was it. You know, it was, it was, if you had it, you're playing with the big boys. It must have been a big deal to get one. It was, it was truly such a big deal that um, I stayed on it for like three days straight. I didn't even shower. I had to be forced to go take a bath. Like, come on, man, you stink, man. Get up and go. I'm like, dude, one more beat. I was on it. I was tunnel vision until I learned it, and then I learned it. Did you always intend to be both a rapper and a producer? No. I intended to just be a DJ and back up. You know, I wanted to be Jam Master J. I just wanted to back up rappers, you know, and produce them. And I ended up writing my own songs. It was, it was weird. It just kind of happened. My inspirations at that time were uh, Rakim, uh, Slick Rick, Easy e Ice Cube, DLC. Actually, you might as well just say NWA. But basically, you know, I got a chance to meet the DLC, and he became, like, my favorite. You know what I mean? You know, so it's a, lot of, a lot of respect goes to him. How did you meet the DLC? Uh, through Suge Knight. When uh, he was with this guy named uh, Tom Klein, who was like an insurance guy, I guess it, that's what you call a venture capitalist. You know, Suge, they made a record company, and uh, Suge signed me to be a part of it. I met Doc, and I was like, wow, it's incredible. How old were you then? Still 19. A lot happened when I was 19. <laughs> it's like, that was the year, 1989. <laughs> it was going on. <laughs> Tell me about what it was like when you went from a guy who had been signed in this group and thought of yourself as a producer to a, about a year later in the midst of a bidding war and, you know, getting a real major label solo deal. You know, it's it was, a, it was like a out-of-body experience. It was like a dream. When I got the deal and uh, got the check, it was like I kept looking at this you know, I had to get a bank account, obviously. I just kept looking at the uh, at my stub, like my, you know, my balance. And it's like, this is crazy. You know what I mean? I could go finally buy a car. I could go buy a motorcycle. And I didn't. I used a whole lot of restraint, you know. Um, Easy e turned me on to his accountant, like, early on in my career. And I kind of did it the right way. Can you tell me a little bit about what the scene was like that you were a part of? 
especially right at the beginning, you know, 92, 93, 94, as, you know, what NWA had built was exploding into, you know, a capital B, capital D, big deal. Right. It was a, there was a lot of work going on. And I remember, you know, this, it was it was busy, but the circles were small. Like you'd be in the studio with Easy e or you'd be in the studio with Ice Cube in the studio next to you, and everybody was just working. It was like this big thing to just be working, you know. And I, I spent most of my time in dark studios and dark rooms with the lights low and candles lit making music. So I didn't see a lot of outside. I got really pale, you know what I mean, because <laughs> I, I was a studio rat. And that's that's pretty much what I remember, just being in the studio, making sounds, bringing sound to life, you know. It must have been complicated, too. I mean, when there's that much money going around. And it was. Um, especially in places where there wasn't money going around before. before. Exactly. It was It was almost like the world is yours. It was like everyone was rich. You know what I mean? There was no economic struggle, no recession. It was everybody was rich. I remember even... Even regular guys in the street had, you know, Porsches and BMWs and stuff. It was just, it was, what a great time, man. <laughs> I'm nostalgic for it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, everybody wasn't rich. I mean, I'm sure you had plenty of people who who were looking to you. Oh, yeah. Everybody was in my pocket. Everybody was like, man, I, I heard so many stories. Like, have you ever seen that movie, The Jerk? Mm-hmm. And you see when he got rich and everybody was like the cat juggler mm-hmm. and he needed money to stop this scourge called cat juggling. <laughs> I was hearing all kind of stories, man, my mom, you know, man, I, all I need is this. I'm short here, man. If you could help me, man. It was, it's like I was getting begged for money every which way but loose. And my accountant was like, be smart, David. Don't be generous. Like, you know, you're not going to get this money back. So I listened to him and I got this 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 idea to if people did ask me for big sums of money. Like, say, you know, I need to borrow $3,000 and I'll give it back. I promise I'll give it back. Nobody's going to give you $3,000 back. Just forget about it, you know. And, and I'm not a bank. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a lender. So what I did was I would say, you know what, I don't have 3000 to give you, but how about I give you like 200 bucks and you don't owe me? And then you're just $2,800 away from your goal. <laughs> that was my theory. Like, you know, and I never looked for it again. But, yeah, people were begging me for money like 90 going west, bro. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Los Angeles producer and rapper DJ Quick. His new EP is called Rosecrans. I want to play um, a song of yours from uh, your album Rhythmalism from 1998. Yeah. Um, and it's a it's a really great song, and it has, I don't know, the perspective of this record is something that I've basically never heard anywhere else in hip hop as a lifelong fan. The song's called Use a Gangsta. Don't mean that I do it. My occupation's a musician and I'm staying true to it. I went from being a rider to being a provider while I was straddling the fence trying not to hit the divider. Just an impressionable human being trying to do right. Every now and then I get my man attested and fight. Like I used to have a beef with this cat named Ace and his homies approached me at the club El Rey. What was I to do? I'm on stage and I'm doing my thing. And this thing is out in the crowd trying to who bang. Giving it up for his homies and set tripping too. But he wasn't from rolling 60s, more like trash. I wonder what's his problem. What he trying to say? Is this business personal or just a quick day i approached him like a man and not like a nut he turned around and put his drink down and straight up in a dark club punches is flying all around and even though it was me and him the rumors 
Hollywood round and said I killed somebody. Now how that sound? How could I show somebody to death that's bigger than me and I'm just 155 pounds? Tell me. There aren't that many hip hop records where like part of it is um, I I couldn't beat that guy up. I'm too small. <laughs> yeah, and think about it. You know, uh, too light to fight, too thin to win. And I was little back then. I might have been putting something. Up. I might have been 152 pounds. <laughs> you know, I was uh, I was in the studio all the time, and uh, you know, I was a little guy. But listening to that record, it reminds me of just how volatile the streets were too, because as good as everything was. Is equally as bad. You know, law of physics, every action is an equal and opposite reaction. Same thing. It was like we're rich on one hand, and at the same time, you can't go to certain neighborhoods. You, you know, stuff popped off. People were tense and, you know, gangs. It was, it was, it was wild. You had a record called Just Like Compton that was, um, it, that was about, you know, oh the, premise of, the premise of the song is, you know, you learning essentially as you tour that there's a lot of cities that were gangbanging. Is I thought gangbanging was only in LA. I thought it was just an LA thing, but I didn't realize it until I got out on the road. That um, you know, places these these rural towns had gangbangers. It's like, how do they even see? You know, did our movies inspire that? Like, you know, like the Boys in the Hood. Like, what made gangbangers? What made people want to be in a gang in El Paso, Texas? Like, it was just it's crazy to me. Well, it turns out it's the same stuff that made people want to be in a gang in L.A., right? Maybe so. I never looked at it from that point. You might be right. <laughs> you know, it was just—it was a trip, man. I mean, uh, you know, I don't feel responsible for it. I mean, gangs were here way before I was, a, you know, before I was in a blood gang. And uh, they're going to be here long after I'm gone. But it was just—it it was surprising to me. It was, like, truly— you know, it was kind of, what do you call, polarizing. It was polarizing to see that. What did it mean to you then to, I mean, you were, at least from what I understand, like wearing colors on stage and stuff like that. Yeah, we used to wear cross colors. Like, my, my thing was, I, was, I wasn't I was like the out there gangbanger because, you know, I actually when I got my record due, I wasn't even in a gang. You know, my gang days was like from when I was like 14, 15, 16 and moved out of Compton, you know, Um but I pretty much was a square from, you know, from 16, 17 years old all the way till my album came out. And it was almost like I couldn't perpetrate and wear blue or black, you know what I mean? So I just kind of rocked my colors a little bit, rocked a little red, and I didn't go overboard with it. But it was like people kind of knew anyway because, you know, I guess bloods have a certain kind of thing about them, you know, and I, I had that thing. But it was, it was, it was a trip, man, to see to see just how that made people feel seeing me on stage performing and them being from another set. Like, it, it angered some dudes. People were jealous. And I just got used to that. It was like, it's, it's whatever. Yeah, I'm up here. You know, I got I got the biggest voice. I got the mic, so it's all about me. But, you know, some people liked it and some people didn't. I, you know, I took a lot of uh, lumps for that. What did, it, what did it mean to you? What did it mean to you? Why did you um, why'd you pick it back up when you were... Um, I had to just I had bad people around me like my the group that I signed I got them a deal second to none they were really pro gangbangers like really about keeping it real keeping it gully you know beer in the alley behind the liquor store type of dudes and these were my friends so I'm, I was like almost you know slipping back into it watching these dudes do it you know and then all the bad came with that like we got shot at on Crenshaw. You know what I mean? Just going to the record company to pick up records. 
because that's the energy they brought. But when I'm by myself, it doesn't happen. So you can get killed by affiliation. It happens all the time, you know. And it was it was pretty much. I'm not putting it on them, but I was just going with the flow with these dudes, and I probably shouldn't have. In hindsight, it's, it's pretty a, white. It's a tough. It's a tough line to walk if you, you know, if you want to choose to continue to be the person you are from the place that you are and have relationships with the people that you grew up with and so on and so forth and um, and be something else that's beyond the scope of that. You know, it's it's tough to do both of those things. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a narrow line. That you walk, and ultimately, one of them is going to get the best of you. And I feel like I went the right way. I, you know, I made it more about music. You know, now, and that was then. You know what I mean? But then the temptation gets bigger when I went to Death Row Records. That's all it was about. It was Bloods and Crips, and it was like that just became a part of the norm. It made for some really interesting times in the studio. Some really scary, uneasy unpredictable times you know it's just it went to, it went into overdrive so it was almost like if i kept being the the sullen implicit gangbanger i'm gonna get crushed by these dudes because i'm not letting it all hang out or i'm not representing so to speak so i kind of started letting it all hang out then and it was to my um to my peril you know it was it was it was pretty costly can you give me an example of a time when it got tense in a context where you were trying to, you know, where you would have preferred to just be making music? Um, yeah, there was a time when uh, Tupac, um, we were just finishing All Eyes on Me, and I had a CD burner, which was a little rare back then. I had a burner, and I burned a CD, listened to it in my Lexus, and my uh, security guy, who knew how important that CD was, took it to the neighborhood and let his friend make a cassette copy of it, so it got bootlegged. Shook found out, and he called us up to the studio, and he told me what was going on, and I didn't believe it. I'm like, he wouldn't do anything like that, but he did. And, you know, he got he got disciplined. This guy got his ass whooped, you know, and um, I felt bad for him, so I went to his neighborhood to go get the dude that did it. It was like, you're the culprit. This dude, my boy, just got beat up for you, and you just walking around here drinking Hennessy in the neighborhood like it's easy, so I took off on him. Bing, bing, he cocked back. And was like, this dude just come over here and hit me in my mouth. And he had somebody with him. He was like, blast him, blood, blast him. And dude put out a Tech 9 on me. And I just went like low-key into shock. Like, oh, man, this is some You know, over Tupac CD and my boy not being honest, now I get killed, right? So instead of him shooting me, we just started fighting. It was like, you know, a fair fight. And I was whooping his ass. And then they double-teamed me. And I'm, I got to fight two guys over this dude who didn't even help me. I fired his ass so fast. I never talked to him again either. He's a sucker. But I almost got killed. I really, this dude pulled the Tech 9 on me, and I had a Glock 19 in the car, 45. So when I got in the car, I reached up under my seat and I grabbed it. And when I thought about killing these dudes, I knew I was going to have to kill my friend too because he was in the way with him. Like he was like on there. It was just weird. And um, I didn't kill him. And my friends tell me, that was a good idea because, and this is this is real. Like, you know, this this really happened. I'm, nobody really even knows this story. But um, they said that, it, you know, it wouldn't have been self-defense. You know, you would have went to jail for murder. But they got a tech nine. You know what I mean? This dude's about to shoot me. If I sh- Ain't that how the law works? Somebody's about to kill you and you got arms. Isn't, aren't you protecting yourself? Isn't that a law? 
And they were like, no, nah, you, you're going to go to jail. You would have went to jail. So I was like, whatever. And I decided to never, ever put myself in those situations again. I mean, you'd also have killed somebody, which I don't think it's any fun to ever, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, that the that's most, not like the going most, to Magic Mountain. <laughs> the most righteous, I don't, I don't think that people who, you know, killed Nazi commanders in World War II felt good about it. Right. Yeah, it's, it, you can imagine how that could weigh on your psyche. But it was like, you know, that was a that was a that was a test that I feel I passed. You know what I mean? I kind of I took lumps for it. Like, you know, I, f- I had to fight two people and I ran out of I was tired all because of this guy. He taught me what your friends can do for you. See, it's them. It's it's always the homies. The homies always bring everybody down. That's just how it works. Your your guys next to you. Do you, do you think Tupac is dead because he fought for his own chain? Because somebody took it from him? No. You understand what I'm saying? He was just defending somebody. And then he dies. It's like, you you know, you got to watch your friends, man. Or have none. After a break, I'll be back with my guest DJ Quick to talk about his time as a producer for Death Row Records, working with the likes of Tupac Shakur and Suge Knight. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Try out the NPR One app for your phone for conversations you won't hear anywhere else. This week, find Guy Raz's exclusive interview with TED curator Chris Anderson, where they discuss the TED phenomenon and the secrets to giving a great TED talk. Find their conversation by searching TED Radio on the NPR One app, where you can also find stories from your local station and more great podcasts. NPR One is on your app store now. New to Maximum Fun, the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, the number one podcast for those involved or just interested in the production of beef animals and dairy herds. All sponsored by Grazex, the latest grass replacement pellet from Mitchell's. If it's not Mitchell's, get back in the truck. Find us at MaximumFun.org or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And if it's not clear, this is a comedy podcast. Beef out. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my 2014 conversation with the producer and rapper DJ Quick. Quick's latest EP is called Rosecrans. You were sort of a house producer for a while with, with Death Row. Mm-hmm. And Death Row was about enacting a drama of gangbangs. Of the streets, yeah. You know, on the one hand, people are making these records that aren't, you know, they're not literal truth-type records. Right. You know, they're theatrical um but at the same time there was a lot of people getting caught up in a lot of stuff yeah well you know at that point life was imitating art and it was like people were trying to live the records you know you write this big sensationalized record and then you go out and try to back it you know it was it was it was it was that's that was the um downfall i think you know it's like you got to be as hard as the record or else you know, it was strange times, dude. It seems like even the, even some of your lightest and most fun records have behind them the specter of death. I mean, death never feels too far away. Fun, yeah. Hey, man, think about it. I'm, I was inspired by Jim Morrison. And I know he, he didn't expect to leave as soon as he did, but it was like death was always there. He was always pressing. He was always 
pushing the envelope, you know. So, you know, and I, I don't have a death wish, but it was always something happening. There was nothing I could do to protect people, you know what I mean? I mean, stuff happens, true. And now that I'm, a, I'm mature, like I'm grown now, I get it. It's a lot of things I can't, you know, can't avoid. Things are going to happen. But I'm just a lot more careful now these days. I take his, I take life a lot more seriously because, you know, I continue to lose people, but now I know how to deal with it. I know how to deal with grief. You know, you don't have to go hard on yourself or beat yourself up or have survivor's guilt or whatever. You know, it's like take it with a grain of salt and you understand that, you know, life goes on. So, you know, I'm not a, there's no more specter of, you know, <laughs> the specter of death, the, uh, the undertones. It's like it is what it is, you know. What was your relationship with Suge Knight like, this guy that you've known since you were a teenager? Um, Suge, we were always cool up until I think it was after, it was right before Tupac died. Um, I just, I wanted to break away from it because the anxiety of being in that kind of studio situation, it didn't, it, it didn't make for a creative energy to make great music. It became like, um, am I going to get into a fight with somebody today or who's going to come in here and mad dog me or try to punk me or, you know, how Suge going to feel today. It just got, it got real uncomfortable. And then it was like a lot of faces just start coming in. So you just see all these new and different people, you know, it's like the cast of characters change, but I was always cordial with him. And then at one point he was really angry at me, you know, and um, I tried to smooth it over. Like now today, like I hung out with him recently and he's such a changed man that it's, 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 suffice it to say, it's cool to kick it with him. Like he's, it's like he learned his lesson or something, you know, or he just matured, you know. It's, it was, uh, but back then, it was like being in the room with a bear that's sedate now, but when it wears off, you're locked in the room with a bear, a big black bear, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, just super powerful dude, menacing almost like you know intimidating you know all those words he was a he was a he was just a, a force just a natural force i i figure i should play um one of your happy records um and this happens to be one of my favorite records of all time it's from uh your album balance and options it's called pitching on a party yes somebody bring the potato salad let's take a ballot Still groovy. I still perform this song too. It goes over well with the audience. I think one of the things that makes the song work so well is this underlying tension, which is this song is about a, having an awesome party. Right. But really, <laughs> you're narrating this song. You're like a nervous mom about this party because they're going to tear the house up. You're just trying to make sure that. 
things don't go off the rails. And they often did. That's why I made the song. Like, I, I really literally tried to throw cool parties because I was a party animal. Like, I loved music and food and people dancing. That was my whole thing. Like, the whole bop mitzvah every time. Like, come on, let's have a ball. And uh, some people came to my parties without that on their mind. They came to my party looking at my nephews like, look at that gold chain he got on. We're going to try to get that mug. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it just, it became, you know. And then the, the way they trashed my house, when you know, that's to be expected. But, you know, things are coming up missing. And, you know, it's really cigarette burns on this really expensive Persian rug or blue carpet, you know, powder blue carpet. So it was just like, you know. I just, um, it's like a true story. Like, that actually happened. I just wrote about it. I, I thought it would make a good narrative. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my 2014 conversation with the producer and rapper DJ Quick. Quick's latest EP is called Rosecrans. I have to ask you a silly question. It's all right. Um, so your hair right now is in a very beautiful braid. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say that um, you have had some of the most creative hairstyles of anyone in the hip-hop world over the past 20 years or so. <laughs> so when was the first time when was the first time that you grew your hair long and long and straightened it? Uh, I was uh, it was it was a uh, grad night graduating junior high school and uh, up until that point you know all the rave was jerry curls but jerry curls were expensive back then we talking about 1985 84 and you know them things cost like $90 a piece and mama ain't even gonna give me $90 to get clothes so I can forget about you know straightening out my fro so my sister my sister gave me a blowout for my graduation and she pressed it with a hot comb and uh you know up until this time I was just wearing a fro you know a patter where you pat it down and try to make it as even as you could put a scarf on it so it lay every hair down you pull it away you know and you have this hair, you know, a fro. Uh, she straightened it out, and I went to school, and I remember the looks I was getting with my hair like that. And that, you know, who knew anything about androgyny or, you know, it's a girl's hairstyle? I just knew that it felt good. Like, it didn't even feel like my hair. It was like, it was light, but it was it was strong. It was, and it, it moved when I moved. It was, it was like it became its own effect. And people, you know, people saw that. And, uh, they, I don't know if they liked it. They just knew it was different. You know, nobody really ever be like, hey, we like your hair like that. <laughs> but, but I did. And I saw, I looked in the mirror and it was like, like dang, I look like like Prince, you know. And then I started to feel like, you know, a star because of my hair. You know, it was a trip. It was when I was 14. Did you have to, I mean, did you bring somebody on the road to take care of it? Sure did, bro. The first time, I, I'm, I'm going to give you this story. I'll give you this story. The, the first time I went on the road, 1991, with Quick is the name, I wore a low-maintenance, what they call a Wave Nouveau. It's like um, a body perm, but it was like jerry curl at the same time. It was a mix. So that was easy to manage. You know, it was just like you wet it, you know, and let it dry a little bit, and it looks natural, and you go. Um, when I dropped Way Too Funky... I got a perm because I wanted that straight look all the time on the stage. Well, lo and behold, on my Way Too Funky tour, all my hair fell out <laughs> because of the perm. So I had to come home after the tour. And I remember wearing this little 
little. I mean, this was an anorexic ponytail. It was like it was so short it didn't even move. It was like, you know, it was it wasn't enough to wrap a rubber band around. But I, I, you know, I came home and had to cut it because the chemicals, you know, just tore my hair out, and I had to start over at that fro I was telling you about. And this was right, right in between Way Too Funky and Safe and Sound, where I was just gone for about a year and a half, two years, trying to grow my hair back because my hair became a part of the thing. It was like DJ Quick is known for his hair. You know, so um, after that, then I could afford to bring a hairdresser on, you know, on, on the tour bus with us. But she just primarily did braids. I, I, left with the, uh, I left the chemicals alone a long time ago. I remember the first time that I saw the video for um, the the remix of I Got Five on it, and Drew Down had out-of-control hair. that was the coolest hair. <laughs> at, it, at, at one point, I did. I had some really dope hair, but dude, Drew Down took it to the next level. He had, like, full-on Goldilocks curls. Dude, that was, it was awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> He he was known more for his hair than anything else. Like girls used to go to his concerts. I know girls that did, just because just because they wanted to swing in his hair. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. Then Snoop, then Snoop came on and started doing the the Goldie Lock styles, and I knew that came from me. No, but it didn't really. I'll be honest. It came from Ice T. Ice T started it with that fly. He was flying those album covers, and I wanted to be like that guy. You know, I was hurt when he cut it all off, but he still looks great right now with it short. But Ice-T was the flyest rapper in the world. I want to talk a little bit about how you make your records. Mm -hmm. Um, You started out mostly working with that sampler and and drum machine. That was it. Just taking taking little pieces of records, trying not to clear a sample, like not stealing somebody's song, but take a snare or kick from it, you know, and then EQ it different and make it kind of my own like just put a warp on it is what it was um and ultimately a sample you just use like maybe a bar or two or two bars and you loop them and you play over it that was my whole that was my whole thing uh up until i had to spend all that money clearing samples and would end up with so small a portion of the song you know when it came royalty time that it was like it didn't make any sense to sample anymore you know because these guys are robbing me you know it's too much money so when are we talking about? Early mid nineties. We're talking about definitely ninety one when when sampling uh, became illegal because before it was like free fair use, you know. But people started making money off of these records, and ultimately the RIAA shut it all down. And there was a law, and James Brown, everybody was you know mad and up in arms about you know give us our money for using our records. And I came in. Right when it became illegal to sample, like I, I, I met him right at the door, like boom, like oh, and I had sampled, so I had to pay a lot of, you know, I had to pay for a lot of records that I used on uh, Quick as a name, but it was still a hit, you know, platinum record, whatever, you know, people ate handsomely off of me, but I decided that I wanted to record and produce my own music, but back then, if you did that, those records just kind of sounded boring and thin, you know, you had to really be a musician. And here I am. I'm just a, at this point, I'm a sampler. I'm a beat maker, a beat crafter, but I sample. The way they record it, it's hard to go in the studio yourself and try to get that sound. It was something magical about the way they record it, who was playing. It was, it was all a thing. It was just hard to, it was hard to get that. So, we, of course, we sampled it. And it just made our lives that much easier because we took 
a little bit of their vibe and put our you know wrote our own music to it. But by the time it was the uh, the mid nineteen nineties, your music was it was mostly original. I it, it kind of happened overnight. I remember jamming out. It, it happened from jam sessions. Like it, it really happened on Safe and Sound when you listen to songs like uh, Quick Screw Three. Like we just threw caution to the wind and. I started miking drums. I mic those drums. Like, I engineered that whole record. Bacon played, you know, he played uh, virtuoso bass, guitar, and, and my man Chaz came in and played flute. And we just build and build. And then I realized that, wow, I'm a musician. I went from being a DJ and a sampler to full-on recording drums the right way. Miking the snare, two mics, one out of phase on the bottom, like... I was really experimenting, and I knew what I wanted. I was driven. I became incensed to get the sound that I wanted, and I ended up getting it. Now now I'm a real musician. I don't have to sample at all if I want to, and I can make some of the most incredible records ever. If you do say so yourself. If I do say so myself. I'm trying to be <laughs> humble here, but I make some really incredible pieces of work. Like, they impress me. I go, wow, this was happened, must have happened during one of my blackouts, but I love it. <laughs> I'll finish my conversation with the rapper and producer DJ Quick after a break. Plus, we'll have comedy from Michael Ian Black. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, we wanted to let you know that one of your favorite NPR podcasts is back. Invisibilia returns with Season 2 on June 17th. Invisibilia explores the invisible forces that shape human behavior. Thoughts, emotion, assumptions, expectations. This season, Invisibilia goes to a prison, an oil rig, a McDonald's in Russia, and a beach in New Jersey to explore the invisible forces at play in our institutions. Work, family, governments. You can catch up on Season 1 of Invisibilia anytime and listen to a preview of Season 2 now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hi, my name is Jonathan Van Ness, and I am the host of Getting Curious. Let me ask you a question. What do you know nothing about, but you just can't stand to like find anything about it because it's just too stiff? I know for me, there was too many things to even count. So I decided I needed to start a podcast where I could find things out and make them more easily digestible to not only myself, but to you. You can find Getting Curious on iTunes or on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the great producer and rapper DJ Quick. I spoke to Quick in 2014 for the release of his album, The Midnight Life. His new EP is called Rosecrans. Let's play a little bit of uh, an instrumental from your new album, The Midnight Life, and my guest is DJ Quick. Um, and this song's called Bacon's Groove. Yes. Um, you've, you've historically always had an instrumental on your record called Quick's Groove. Yeah, as, as this album, I got one on there too. And those have almost always featured your guitarist, um, whose name is Robert Bacon. Yes, sir. Um, so tell me how he got his own cut on this one. Well... <laughs> when he um we're in the studio we're just vibing around and uh i told him you know i got this real old drum machine bro like a uh, 1970s rolling like a, you know i think it's called a um cr8000 or something just these old dirty drums and as i was playing them he was like oh it was like a, he he knew what to do already so i he started playing around joking around right and this and this happened in less than an hour it was creepy because it happened so fast it was like over already i programmed the drums did a nice program while he's playing the guitar i recorded the drums you know in the pro tools and 
set him up a track, and he just started writing the song out like it just came out of out of the air. He was just pulling the notes in, and he it was just perfect, track by track. He did the uh, guitar one, and then he did a, um, a overdub harmony guitar, and then he did the solo, and then he played Moog. Like you know, he he co-produced way too funky, so he's still an awesome songwriter, arranger, you know, multi instrumentalist or whatever. But this song, when I when I mixed it, it made me feel so good that you know I felt bad if I tried to call it a quick roof because it just really came out of this man's soul. So for the first time ever, I gave a person a groove on my on my album, and it was it was making. It's just this is really his music. This is all his soul. Let's take a listen. afraid to make pretty music yeah no, i've music. been i've been uh i've been uh i've been heckled <laughs> a lot about it you know people have uh, i felt it like why do you make beautiful music i don't know i think that's what the world of music is missing you know there are people that are trying to do it now and they're just making cute music and cute is fleeting i think that beautiful music lives forever you know and this is this is obviously a, a totally beautiful record. And that, that, that's how the man felt when he played it and how I felt when I mixed it. I just, you know, I, I knew it was too gorgeous. Almost, it was, it was a risk to put it on the record. Um, but I did it anyway because I wouldn't be being honest to my musical heritage if I didn't put that record out. I want to play one more song. Um, it's a, a happy song, a party song. Another one of your biggest hit records as a producer. Um, it's Tony, 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 and Let's Get Down. Funnest song. <laughs> you didn't think we could flip it on your ass, huh? Something for the dance floor. In a real way. It's going down like this forever. And a day. Now what you hear is not a drag Cause Mr. DJ Quick got a brand new bag But first I got a bang bang A boogie for the boogie to the rhythm of the getaway streets Check it out now You trying to give me some 8-ball but no way I'd rather have a mimosa with Cristal and OJ Yeah, just a little something bubbly and tingly To have me walking around naked But wait a second The function's on Around midnight What time is it? That drum sequence is responsible for a lot of platinum records. That same drum sequence was used in R. Kelly's uh, Home Alone. It was used in Shackles on My Feet from Mary Mary. It was used in Dollars and Cents. My, you know, my record it was used as a breakbeat 
for a uh, Simon Harris compilation, one of those breakbeat compilations, and it ended up on uh, Indo Smoke by Warren G. and Mr. Grimm. It ended up on Black Superman by 187, Code 187, Above the Law, and uh, Second to None's Be True to Yourself. It was like that drum break with the extra drums that I added, it's an automatic, it tells your feet what to do immediately as soon as you hear it. I've never seen people not react to that song. That, that song is going to be a hit. That song's going to outlive us all. It must have been fun to get in the studio with Tony, Tony, Tony. Dude, I hate it when it goes by too fast, though. It's like, let's do a whole album. Like, this song is great. Like, let's do more. But, you know, they're already doing their own thing. They're all still working on their own records. But, yeah, man, Rafael Sadiq is, you know, and Dwayne and Tim and Elijah, you know, all these guys are just incredible. Like, you know, they... They inspired me as a musician. And from the time I heard the Sons of Soul album, I was already a, a fan, you know. Um, but there were just certain special records that the Tonys did that were just bigger than everybody else's records. You know, Just Me and You, the song for uh, the um, Boys in the Hood soundtrack. I mean, this record is a soundtrack to my life, you know. Um, Anniversary and Lay Your Head on My Pillow. You know what I mean? I From cas- Sons of Soul. I had a single of Lay Your Head on My Pillow that I wore, wore out. out. Probably popped. Yeah. Dude, that was, I wanted to do that with them. So if you listen to Let's Get Down, I was kind of like, you know, like the way he did drums, the way they had the drum machine, but real drums playing on top of it. That's kind of what I did. You know, I, I was just following. I, I said it in the studio when I was working on Safe and Sound. I said, I want to work with the Tonys one day because we were so, we were all into Sons of Soul record, and I ended up doing it. I ended up going in the studio with him, meeting him, and we ended up becoming friends and making that record. Dream come true, buddy. What instrument is it that makes the sound that goes... It's, it's called a flexitone. Um, they don't make them as much as they do, but if you, you Google it, it's a flexitone. It looks like um, a piece of sheet metal that's folded in a special way, and it's on, these, uh, it's on this uh, wire, kind of a wire frame. And when you bend it, you change the pitch of it. If you bend it in, it tightens, and it you know naturally the pitch goes up. You release it, the pitch goes down. And I learned how to play that thing like a that was my saxophone. You know what I mean? I'm playing just a little wooden mallets and a piece of sheet metal, but I'm making it make some sounds that was out of this world. I I know I've mastered that thing. Does flexitone <laughs> Does flexitone incorporated keep you in flexitones because you are the, you're the, the king, king of the flex- undisputed <laughs> king of the flexitone? <laughs> Oh uh, no, it's a it's a I think Latin percussion makes it, but they don't make them as much anymore. Like you got to order them. They come from I think South America or whatever, you know, but uh yeah, they don't they don't they don't make them like they used to. I wish they would have gave me an endorsement though. <laughs> <laughs> well, Quick, it's really been a pleasure getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. Thank you, Jay. This is great. DJ Quick has a brand new EP. It's called Rosecrans. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Michael Ian Black is known to comedy fans for his work in The State, Stella, and Wet Hot American Summer. He's also got a couple of podcasts. He's written a bunch of books. His latest is called Navel Gazing, True Tales of Bodies, Mostly Mine, But Also My Mom's, which I know sounds weird. Anyway, the first time we took our comedy and creativity festival Max FunCon out to the East Coast, we asked Michael Ian Black to headline the stand-up show, which he did... But before he started doing jokes, he made his daughter come up on stage and sit down and watch him. 
So a few years ago was the first time my kids were old enough to kind of conceive of their own Halloween costumes. And as a parent, like, that was really exciting because I couldn't wait to see what they would be for Halloween because kids have amazing imaginations. They could be anything. Couldn't wait. This is what my kids decided to be. My son decided to go as a pirate. My daughter decided to go as a princess. No, don't, don't patronize her. The least creative costumes in the world. The most hackneyed, tri- like just with a little more effort, they could have been amazing costumes. You know, if my son had been like, I want to be a pirate, I want to be a Somali pirate, I would have been like, good costume. If my daughter had been like, I want to be a princess, I want to be a Jewish American princess. Good costume. No. Pirate, princess. You know what the kid next door went as? A cat's tail. <laughs> you understand? Not a cat. Cat's tail. When he came to our house and explained to me that he was not, in fact, a pipe cleaner, which also would have been excellent. but was a cat's tail, I did not give that child candy. I gave him a hug, and I wrote him a check for $100. The next year, I say to my son, what are you going to be for Halloween? He goes, I'm going to be Frankenstein. I said, fine. Halloween comes, comes downstairs, he's wearing an old suit jacket of mine, old suit pants, ripped up shirt, his face is painted green, he's got like a makeup scar across his head, and he's doing this. And I look at him, and I go, what are you supposed to be? He goes, I'm Frankenstein. I said, no, you're not. You're the creature. Frankenstein was the doctor who invented the creature. Go upstairs and change. No, because if he goes around knocking on doors and tells everybody that he's a Frankenstein when he's the creature, guess who looks like an idiot? I do. Last year was probably the best year in terms of creativity. I say to my son, when are you going to be for Halloween? He goes, I'm going to be Dr. Coconut. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is Dr. Coconut? So I say to him, what the hell is Dr. Coconut? He goes, I'm going to get a big coconut costume. And to him... In his fevered little mind, it's a given that you could walk into any store, any CVS or what have you, and be like, show me to your coconut costumes. 
And they will be like, right this way, sir. So that I just let go. I'm going to get a big coconut costume and a stethoscope. Dr. Coconut. And I think about that for a second. And then I say something to him that I don't think I've ever said before. I said, I love you. Michael Ian Black recorded live at our first ever Max FunCon East back in 2012. His most recent book is called Naval Gazing, True Tales of Bodies, Mostly Mine. You can find more about Michael and all his work at michaelianblack.org. And I'm going to be back out in the Poconos with another batch of amazing comedians, podcasters, and creative types later this year. Max FunCon East 2016 runs through Labor Day weekend. You can find tickets and more information at maxfuncon.com. Every week on Bullseye, we highlight a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. Almost 10 years ago, the San Francisco sketch comedy group Casper Hauser wrote a book called Sky Mall, Happy Crap You Can Buy from a Plane. Sky Mall, in this case, being spelled Sky M-A-U-L rather than M-A-L-L to distinguish it from the airline catalog that it parodied. Sky Mall, the original, the kind you find in your seatback pocket, is basically the catalog to end all catalogs. It's the repository of our culture's most grotesque excesses and least essential technologies. Casper Hauser's version, Sky Mall with a U, goes one step further, from grotesquerie into madness. The book earned adoring blurbs from comedy geniuses like Patton Oswalt and George Saunders, not to mention comedy writing's greatest Daves, Dave Barry and Dave Foster Wallace. It was a modest sales success, and it went out of print. It sells for triple digits these days, if you can find one. Luckily for those of us who don't have connections in the rare book industry, there's a more recent Sky Mall with you. Sky Mall 2, where America buys its stuff. Like the real thing, Sky Mall 2 is a collision between America's consumption compulsion and the creepy banality of stock art and catalog prose. Some of the things for sale in Sky Mall 2 seem almost real, like the History's Greatest Speeches karaoke set. Underneath a picture of a businesswoman holding a microphone, it says, How about the words of Stalin, Marie Curie, and Dick Fosbury scrolling up an easy-to-read screen while you hold court? Giggling recommended. Fun and learningful. Yes, Gettysburg is in there. Then, right next to the businesswoman, is the mallet and pedal for a kick drum, with the title, Handicapped Accessible Seal Club. And a picture of a giant hyena standing on a pallet loader, like it was a set of water skis. It just says, Forked Hyena Loader. Like I said, madness. The sky mall you get on the plane is a list of soon-to-be-broken promises. The pictures of happy people using weird gadgets, smiling grandparents, children enthralled by some toy. In Casper Hauser's Sky Mall, the same bull's on offer. It's just a little more concentrated. Like the great pine cones of literature. Or the ad for a lawyer that says, Have you been injured? I have. Lots of times. Or the two-volume self-help set 
Clown Your Way to a Better Marriage, and Making It Work, Living in Your Mazda with a Chimpanzee. Or the I Should Have Invented a Solar Car Kit, Above a picture of an older man with a headache and a pile of junk food, drink, and drugs, it says, You had 50 years to invent something, build something, but you didn't do it. Now your kids are at Bennington doing theater and probably smoking heroin. Why didn't I follow my heart, my gut? Jesus, I had the plans. Note, this kit contains only what is shown below. It is not a solar car kit. Consumption culture teaches us that we can buy our way out of pain that the next purchase is going to be the one that helps us finally be happy. You know, it's a lie. The only thing that can really make you happy is purple snort. Healthy vigor snort for men and women just crush and snort and get ready to be the Davy Crockett of your own mental Alamo. No, just kidding. The only thing that can make you happy is Sky Mall 2, so go buy one. That's my out chat. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producers this week were Abadian X. Parello and Jennifer Marmer. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer at Maximum Fun is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs or extended versions of our interviews, they're all free. Just grab them at MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's sort of like Bullseye, but instead of interviews, it's four experts chopping it up about culture. The host is the brilliant and hilarious comedian Guy Branham. This week, the gang are talking about RuPaul's Drag Race, the art of drag, and how to be a good queen. That's Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.